Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Mark chapter 12. As I mentioned yesterday, many scholars understand chapters 11 to 16 as the final unit in Mark's gospel, and then they see two subsections within that final unit. Chapters 11 to 12 are often seen together, and chapters 13 to 16 are seen together. Chapter 12, then, would be the second chapter in this unit, and it continues to deal with the theme of Jesus in open confrontation with the leaders in Jerusalem. We'll start reading at verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, as Mark says there, the Jerusalem leaders immediately perceived that this parable was told against them. They were not having a hard time putting this together. They understood the basic outline here. They understood that they were the bad tenants that they were the ones who had beaten and persecuted and prosecuted and executed several of the prophets in the past who had come to try to get Israel to the place where they were giving God what God was due. So they were putting this together. Now, part of why they were putting it together was because it's very common in the Old Testament for Israel to be spoken of as a vineyard. Uh, For example, in Isaiah chapter 5, listen to how that passage begins. Isaiah 5, 1-2 says, Let me sing for my beloved a song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, this is very easy to imagine in your mind's eye if you've ever been to Israel. Around Jerusalem on the hills, on the mountains, and in the valleys. There are all kinds of vineyards. 
and they're all dug out onto the side of the vineyard. So if you, if you look, or onto the side of the mountain, if you look at the mountains while you're on the road leading up to Jerusalem, if you look at all the mountains uh, and imagine a steep slope, obviously they have to kind of dig out a little bit. The, the mountains are ideal for, uh, for growing grapes, but the slope necessitates that you've got to do a little bit of work. You've got to build some kind of a retaining wall. And then usually you'd build a watchtower right in the center of it. So a servant could sit up on the top of the watchtower and make sure that foxes or, or enemies weren't getting in to disrupt the crop. But then basically, if you put in that work, the soil should do the rest. The conditions, just the geography should do the rest. And you should have a wonderful harvest of grapes. And so basically what the prophet is saying in this little mini parable is that God has done everything necessary to produce a covenant community that should return to him the worship and the service that he is due. Whatever's wrong with Israel, it's not God's fault. It's their fault. And Jesus is picking up that imagery. Jesus is saying that one of the reasons Israel isn't producing what it should. In fact, to be honest with you, that word there at the end of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, that the ESV renders as wild grapes, in the Hebrew, it's actually stink fruit. Meaning, not only is, is this not adequate, is the, not only is the worship and the service they're giving God not adequate, it's, it's actually ruinous and reprehensible. It, it stinks. And Jesus is saying that one of the reasons that Israel's worship and service stinks is because she has fallen under the leadership of bad characters. And and the Jerusalem leaders are pretty sharp there. They're picking up. He's talking about them. Jesus is being very confrontational, very direct. He's saying to the people of Israel that if they want to be the people that God intended them to be, they have to come under his leadership. They have to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if they don't do that, then they will lose the blessing of God and forfeit their role in the kingdom. That's what he's saying. We'll go back into the text at verse 13 there. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Yeah, no kidding. In, in general, here's just a free tip, not a good idea to try and trap the word of God in his talk, right? That's never going to go well for you. And it doesn't go well for the Pharisees and the Herodians in this story. Basically, this is an attempt to sort of calve off a, a, a slice of Jesus' popular support. We've already mentioned that the leaders in Jerusalem were concerned about the popularity of Jesus. They were worried that it would interfere with their plans to arrest him. And so this question is an attempt to sort of chop away at Jesus' popular support. They ask him a question about the very unpopular poll tax. Now, as a person living in Galilee, Jesus actually didn't pay the poll tax. The poll tax applied only in provinces under direct Roman rule, like Judea. So they appeal to him as a wise foreigner. 
but their real goal is to alienate him from the crowd. If he answered on the side of paying the tax, he would lose the support of the Jewish patriots. If he objected to paying the tax, then they'd be able to denounce him to the Romans. Either way, it was a win for them, they thought, until Jesus began to speak. Now, he begins by wrong-footing them. He asks them to produce the coin with which the tax is paid. Now, many in the crowd would have believed it wrong, even idolatrous, to have such a coin on your person because it had on its face the image of Caesar. By asking for the coin, Jesus made it clear that he didn't have one, but he also made it clear that his questioners did have one. And now it was they who were in danger of losing the crowd. The actual answer that Jesus gives is brilliant. R.T. France puts it this way. He says, his pronouncement assumes that there is no clash between the legitimate claims of Caesar and of God. It is therefore an answer no zealot could have given, but neither is it simply pro-Roman. God also has his rights. Jesus is saying here that a Christian can serve God and also fulfill his or her civic responsibilities. That's the narrow line that Jesus draws here. And then you can see that line expanded upon by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 1 to 7. But we need to get back into the text. Verse 18 says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. By the way, every group of leaders in Jerusalem is coming at Jesus in waves here. Right? So we've had Pharisees, we've had scribes, we've had Herodians, now we've got Sadducees. So Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a, brother, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The Sadducees were a minority religious movement in, in Israel, mostly associated with the high priestly family. They only regarded the Pentateuch as authoritative, that is, the first five books of the Bible, and they didn't believe in bodily resurrection or the existence of angels. And here they come to Jesus with what looks like a ridiculous hypothetical situation, intending to trap him in an absurd answer. They say, well, if a woman was married to seven men, and they were all resurrected in the eternal kingdom. To whom would she be married? To the first one or to all seven? Will there be polygamy in heaven, they ask him. And they assume that no matter what answer he gives, he's going to sound ridiculous. But again, it is not a good idea to play word games with the word of God. Jesus is pretty firm here. He says, you are wrong because you don't know the Bible 
and you don't know the power of God. You aren't reading the whole Bible, he says. So, of course, your theology is full of holes. By the way, there's a lesson in there. If you want to have theology that's full of holes, pick and choose which parts of the Bible you read. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. And then he answers them on their own ground. He's not intimidated. He says, fine, you only like the first five books of the Bible? I'll talk to you about the first five books of the Bible. And he answers them from Exodus. He says, even the Bible that you read proves that you don't know what it's saying. There is a resurrection. And everything is different on the other side. Verse 28 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I would think so. But this brother, at least, has done better than the rest. And Jesus says that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Because once you understand that right religion is about a restored relationship to God and a restored relationship with other people, you are well on your way to understanding the life and death of Jesus Christ. Verse 35 says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and who for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now here Jesus turns the tables. All these leaders have been coming to them, asking them questions. So now Jesus starts asking his own questions. The scribes were sure that the Messiah would be a son of David. So Jesus says, how is it then that in Psalm 110, David refers to the Messiah as his Lord? If the Messiah were a mere human grandson of David, then Messiah should call David Lord because the greater is praised by the lesser. But the fact that David acknowledges his great-grandson as his superior means that Messiah must be more than a mere man. And the crowds heard him gladly. Verse 41, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This wonderful little story has a fairly straightforward point. When it comes to Christian giving, it isn't how much you give, it's how much you keep. What you keep is a better indicator of your faith than what you give. This woman was all in. And that becomes the pattern for Christian life and giving. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.